Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And boy, do we have a jam-packed show for you coming up today. So much going on in the news, and that's without even having time to touch on a a couple of things. Uh, Albuquerque Public Schools letting former State House Speaker Cheryl Williams-Stapleton go from her job with them amidst a scandal that recently forced her to resign that position in the legislature. We have a ruling here in Albuquerque from the city clerk that Manny Gonzalez, one of the challengers to Mayor Tim Keller in the upcoming election, uh, again, a reaffirmation that he would not be eligible for public financing. Just so much going on. We want to get to as much of it as possible. And we're going to kick things off, as usual, with our line opinion panel. And this week we were joined by regular Sophie Martin. She is an attorney. Ed Perea is back. He's also an attorney and a public safety consultant. And then we welcome a new one to the group, a newbie, if you will, Rebecca Latham. She was she served in former Governor Susana Martinez's administration in the Cultural Affairs Department. Uh, and she is currently the CEO of the Girl Scouts of New Mexico. So thrilled to have Rebecca with us. Uh, going to be a great addition, we feel like. And we're going to start off with a big one with this group in terms of the state budget. You may have seen this week, but a sunnier outlook than many had predicted. And we're talking sunnier. We're talking about expected revenues, a surplus of about $1.4 billion with a B for the next year. It is a budget session next January and February. And there are going to be lots of things coming out of COVID uh, that people are going to be asking for money for, not to mention something we'll talk about later on, which is the continued education reform stemming from the Yazzie Martinez case. Lots to dive into here. We want to get right to it, see what the line folks have to say about the prudent approach to this big budget surplus. Here's host Gene Grant. Well, economic forecasts hardly get sunnier than the $1.4 billion surplus predicted for the next state budget. Now, coming off the pandemic recession, it's not the kind of rapid rebound we're used to in New Mexico. So here to talk through the implications is our line opinion panel. We welcome a new face to our virtual group this week. It's Rebecca Latham. She's the former head of the New Mexico Tourism Department under Governor Susana Martinez, but she's currently CEO of the Girl Scouts of New Mexico. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Attorney and public safety expert Edmund Perea is back with us this week. Good to see you as always, Ed. And one of our line regulars, attorney Sophie Martin, returns as well. And Sophie, I'll start with you. Uh, State economists say this is, yes, oil and gas revenue they're projecting, but they're also seeing much higher than normal consumer spending. It's very interesting to me. Simple question, are either of those things sustainable? Well, I mean, the, the question of oil and gas and whether that's sustainable in mm-hmm. New Mexico, we've seen those fluctuations over the years. Mm-hmm. We, you know, our attempts to prognosticate over that have have uh, seldom gone well. But, you know, we it's 40 something percent of our of our uh, revenues each year is, is what we usually see with oil and gas. And right. um, and so 
I guess lucky for us this time. I, I'm frankly, you know, we've we've talked about that a lot, but I am concerned about the projections um, based on tax revenue and consumer spending here in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk a little bit later in the show about some changes that might uh, they're expected to occur in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I I really I I am concerned because. It does sound like a lot of that comes from federal revenues that our locals are spending here, mm-hmm. uh, and they, those might not continue. We'll, you know, we'll see as COVID continues whether That's that money point, continues yeah. to. Yeah, uh, you know, Rebecca, oil prices, government stimulus—they're all inherently, like Sophie mentioned, unstable sources of income. They go up, they go down, but aren't aren't they? But here's the question: Are there fundamental changes to the New Mexico economy that we might be missing here? You know, I think overall, uh, first of all, let me say I'm just stoked. I'm stoked as just like everybody else, that there's more money in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, like who doesn't like finding a 20 in your pocket that you forgot that was there? <laughs> New unexpected money is great. This, I, is, like I a, this do, is like a hundred dollar bill in your pocket. Obviously, by New Mexico like standards, right? Yahtzee, like what are we going to do with it? Are we mm-hmm. going to invest it or are we taking it to the casino? Like what's the plan here? And I think that's where I'm just a little bit, I'm hesitant. I'm, hap- I'm hesitant about what happens next. And I'm also making this face with every elected official who's taking credit for it, because we've seen recently numerous elected officials coming out and saying like, heck yeah, we've got 1.4 billion extra dollars as a result of sound sound fiscal policy. But does it sound like sound fiscal policy to invest $100,000 to recruit one new state police officer? Because that's what the proposal that the governor has put together, her proposal to invest $100 million to hire 1,000 new officers boiled down to. And we are indeed in a crime crisis, but uh, we need more law enforcement. Throwing money, that kind of money around with $1.4 billion is not gonna solve the issues that is that's causing our current officers to retire or just walk away entirely. Mm. Now, you know, when it let, comes let, let down to- Let me ask you to, this, I do wanna come back and handle that um, a bit separately, the law enforcement side, cause that's kind of interesting. And I want you to kind of take your time on that too. Let me uh, swing to Ed here real quick. I, I wanna point out, Ed, that this doesn't include money skimmed off the top, so to speak, an estimated $1.5 billion into the rainy day funds. So what's the most prudent approach here? Spend it all in on like one-time projects like infrastructure or make in incremental program changes, pay raises. There's a lot of things as Rebecca was hinting at here that we can do with this money. What, what's the best way in your view? Well, whenever I hear the term and I've heard it over and over again with this announcement is that the government, the state is flush with cash. Mm-hmm. It raises a lot of red flags because whenever you see this abundance of, of new money, there's always this tendency to go out and maybe enjoy it a little more than you should. I think one of the most important (laughs) things we can do now, now that we have this flush of funds, is we need some oversight. We need, you know, whatever the the organization is within the government to take a close look at how this money is spent Mm -hmm. and not treat this money as as extra money to do a lot of a lot of a lot of fun stuff. Uh, you know, exorbitant pay raises or things or things of that sort. I think we need to keep, keep the lid on certain things. I think there really has to be a priority, uh, and the priorities really need to be those things that maybe we've we've you know overlooked in the past, or those that are have much greater needs, such as infrastructure. We know that we have real issues with the roads in New Mexico, and mm-hmm. we just need to put certain things on top of the list and be very careful with reoccurring expenses. I think you know we need to look at this, address as many one-time expenses as we can off the top, 
and then maybe start to look a little more at some of the reoccurring expenses. But we need to be very careful because as it's already been mentioned uh, by Sophie and Rebecca, you know, this is, you know, it, it has its ups and downs and, uh, you know, we need to be just fiscally aware of that and, mm -hmm. and uh, not spend like a, you know, to, to use a, a term like a drunken sailor. Right. We have a, a few extra dollars. That's good. They're a landlocked there. state. You know that, Ed. <laughs> Just checking. Hey, Sophie, let me ask you this. Let's widen the lens a little bit, maybe. Is it really yeah. the state's job to address crime issues and what basically seems to be Albuquerque? Uh, you know, this governor has mm -hmm. uh, made efforts in that direction by uh, utilizing the state police. So, I mean, to, to to be clear, I don't think that I don't think that Rebecca was unclear in this, but mm -hmm. but this is she's not talking about putting money toward the Albuquerque Police Department. She's talking about beefing up the state police and then using some of that uh, resource, the that that opportunity to help out in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think though that this is a it's an interesting time for us because it has been a really horrible year and a half. Um, I think state employees, we want to we want to try to keep state employees working. Mm -hmm. um, and traditionally, we've not been great about giving raises for our public servants. Um, I personally sort of as a as a rule of thumb, I'd like to see money spent in the state by folks who are then going to turn around and spend it with someone who's going to turn around and spend it mm. in the state. And infrastructure mm -hmm. programs can be, certainly can be like that, mm -hmm. um, where we see the benefit of the of the work, and then we also see the benefit of the money circulating within our economy. Uh, and my hope is, again, just as a rule of thumb, that that is a priority for this government. Well, the priorities, this is going to be a tough one. Let me go back to one of your original points, Rebecca, and that is law enforcement and crime issues here. Uh, you took note of the governor's plan for $100 million of the surplus to go towards that. And you mentioned a second ago that might be, when you're talking about over a billion dollars, kind of a drop in the bucket. What would you like to see for a, for a number? Do you have a back-of-the-envelope number personally that you'd like to see spent on law enforcement here? I think we need to address the issues that are currently plaguing law enforcement in our state before mm -hmm. we start to just say, like, let's just throw more money at it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you would be hard pressed to find another New Mexican who supports law enforcement as much as I do. I love and appreciate every single one of our officers so much. Uh, but uh, again, what we're seeing at, at the Albuquerque level, we've seen a mayor who's told us over and over again, like, we're going to hire, hire more police, hire more police, mm -hmm. we're going to hire more police. Mm -hmm. We're budgeted for more police. We were budgeted for more than poli more police at the beginning of the administration prior to a gross receipts and tax increase to hire more police. We're still not able to hire more police. So clearly money is not the issue. Mm -hmm. At the end of the year, when those funds have not been fully expended on more police, where do they go? They go somewhere else. They don't go where they were originally supposed to go to hire more police. So mm -hmm. to me, it just feels like this definition of insanity. We just keep doing the same thing and saying we're going to do more and it's going to fix the crime crisis. It is, I, I fully support our, our state police. I support and appreciate our governor taking, taking some, uh, some bold steps to say like that she wants to overhaul the criminal justice system in New Mexico. That has to be done before we can rely on more police to fix the problem. And mm -hmm. when I did that math, you know, $100,000 investment for, for each officer, it's not just like, that's just not salaries. I know that, but that's, that's an insane amount of money for, it, without addressing the, the issues, you know, before that. So yeah. I just think we got a lot of work to do. Let me bring Ed on, on this one, too, about bail reform. Interesting, we've had that conversation here at the, at the table, so to speak, <laughs> before Ed. But bail reform certainly something that would have to be a, a constitutional amendment. 
In, 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 but I, I guess in the context of this, with all this money, is this money enough to kick forward all the things that Rebecca and Sophie have been talking about here? Because it's a multi-pronged problem. We haven't even talked about the lack of money on the defense side of the issue. Folks have been screaming for money on that side of the deal here for a long time. So what's the deal here with bail reform? Do we need to get after that first before we can get after these other crime problems as well? Well, I, I think there are just so many multiple component parts to this to this entire issue, yeah. and bail reform clearly is one of them. I, I think there was uh, there was this idea uh, and this goal for for passing this this, this uh, bail reform, uh, and now it needs to be tweaked. I think we're realizing that that it's not perfect, and that there are some things that need to be worked out. I think some modifications that, that need to be made. Now that being said, I'm not so sure based upon the data that I've seen is that this bail reform, this constitutional amendment that was, was recently passed is really the problem. Whenever we look at the crime crisis, we need to identify the problem. A lot of people are pointing out as this bail reform as the problem, but if you talk to others on the other side and you look at the numbers, this bail reform isn't, isn't a major causal factor to, to the crime that we have, but doesn't say that we can't address the issue and make it and make it a little better. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Rebecca and, and Sophie just are, are right on the point when it comes to uh, to how we spend money and we can't throw money at problems. And my concern always is let's put a million dollars out there for a thousand more officers. And there's so much more to that. You know, as Rebecca mentioned earlier, like you need to make the career attractive. And part of the problem is we don't have a, as many individuals as we used to wanting to be police officers. And so we need point. to address some of those things. But I don't know that money is, is, is the answer. That's a point. In itself. Sophie, real quick, I, I'm just super curious. Uh, politically, the next session is going to be the governor's last big whack at this uh, policy going into the reelection. Is it going to be all crime and crime stuff? I mean, is that which, what we should expect? You know, just, you know, taking a step back and, and speaking from more of the, since you brought up the upcoming elections, right? Mm -hmm. um, crime has not traditionally been the topic that Democrats have sought to run under. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is seen as a little bit of an Achilles heel. So to the extent that the governor, it seems to me, can try to address that Achilles heel, great. But, but my suspicion is that her stronger case is for, um, for programs that help to lift up New Mexicans. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to, I mean, she's—I don't think she's going to be able to just ignore it. I can't imagine she would. But, but I think she's going to want to try to pivot to something more positive. And this money maybe gives her an opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. Interesting point there. We're out of time, but we're back in a few minutes to talk about the end of the federal unemployment boosts. Another big story. We know that as of Wednesday. Uh, refugees from Afghanistan did start arriving at Holloman Air Force Base. That's one of five military installations where roughly 50,000 refugees are expected to be placed. Uh, we are working diligently to get as much information about this as possible. And of course, as we talked about last week, there are also some other refugees in New Mexico on the New Mexico side of Fort Bliss near El Paso, so New Mexico right in the center of this, and we wanted to check in with Nicole Maxwell. She's a reporter at the Alamogordo Daily News who has been uh, covering this. 
wanted to find out what she was getting, what information she's not getting, and you'll you'll hear that is the majority of it as this thing is so fast moving um, that uh, details are coming in almost minute by minute, it feels like, and not always released to the public either. So uh, this was a Facebook Live that we did this week on uh, Wednesday. We try to do those on Wednesday with host Gene Grant, but here is an update on the situation at Holloman, and here's host Gene Grant. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Appreciate that. Hello, folks. Time for another Facebook Live. It's September. 2021. <laughs> it seemed like 2021 was just spring a second ago, but the summer's gone and here we are in September. And what we've got going on is a situation with Afghan refugees here in New Mexico. I'm sure you're aware of, I hope you're aware of. Uh, Hall of an Air Force Base in Alamogordo is one of five Air Force bases or military installations, I should say more accurately, that is going to house refugees for the immediate future. And those others are just in case of Fort Lee in Virginia, Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, Fort Bliss in Texas, of course. Joint Base McGuire-Dixon-Lakehurst, that's in New Jersey, and Marine Corps Base Quantico, Virginia, of course, in Fort Pickett, Virginia. Now, we're going to be working with about 120,000 uh, Afghan refugees. Uh, I'm sorry, those installations are going to share um, about 50,000 Afghan refugees. So we're going to talk to Nicole Maxwell right now from the Amalgordo Daily News about the local impact. Now that you've got the bigger picture, Nicole, thank you for your reporting. First of all, in the Daily News, I know it's been a little difficult getting information out of Holloman. Let's get this out of the way just real quick. We'll get some of the volunteer efforts. Uh, what's this, what's your, what are you hearing from Holloman? If you're hearing anything uh, about, first of all, the numbers of refugees we can expect to house here, and then how? What I've heard so far I, has not been a, a been confirmed by, base, by the base, so um, I'm not going to say exact numbers. But, but, um, we just know that there's going to be a share of the 50,000, mm-hmm. and that they have a, there's tents set up for for them and the support people and any questions that i have have been since i've been i am to support them to a uh, department of homeland security uh, from which i've yet, not yet heard back so mm-hmm. it, you know I, I you know it's hard to assess when i think about the times they have housed folks namely immigrants from south of the border when we've had overflow and things like that at different installations does anybody know how many they could co- potentially how is it Holloman? Is there a sense of that at this point? I honestly don't know. Yeah. By the tents and everything, it's just, it's too hard to tell how many, what the number would be. Okay. Um, all I, the only, uh, only visuals I've seen are, are that photo that was provided by Holloman that was posted to their Facebook page. Yeah. Awfully hard to guess, isn't it? It's very, mm-hmm. very tough. Let's home in on the local community and local area for Alamogordo. Um, uh, I just give the folks up here in Albuquerque a sense of the community and where it's at. Is there a rallying effort going on? Or are you sensing that folks are wanting to pitch in here and give give a hand? Yes, there's a, a lot of people wanting to help. And there's a, a drop-off place at, at Love Inc., which is, which for those in uh, southern New Mexico, it's uh, here in Alamogordo uh, on Indian Wells Road near the intersection of Scenic Drive, which is where Indian Wells kind of ends. Um, mm-hmm. And um, a phone number for a Love Inc. is 575-439-4812. And they have people who are going to um that are that have access to to Holloman and are and are taking the donations there. Hmm. You know, I'm I'm particularly sorry, I might didn't mean to cut you off there. Go go ahead. ahead. (laughs) Well, I was just finished up, so go ahead. 
Um, I'm curious about the clothing. I'm seeing the list here of uh, requested items, but clearly these folks have a different way of dressing. And, and I noticed there's an emphasis on loose clothing. Are, are folks hearing this? I mean, we're not talking about folks coming from Ohio, uh, not to be funny here, but there's a different way of dressing. Are, are we able to meet those needs? Um, based on what I what's generally available here in Alamogordo from, from the local um, big box stores and dress barns that... I think we can, because, yeah. 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 Chris, but I have also Yeah, it's also like, like modest women's clothing. Like, they're, like if you donate a cat suit, they're probably not gonna wanna take it. <laughs> Good point there, <laughs> well said. But I also see things like tote bags, new gym bags, new infant hygiene products, including baby, baby powder diapers, diaper rash ointments and such. We're talking real basics here, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. So a lot of these people came yeah, got on the plane with just the clothes on their backs. So, it's, and is yeah, there's been reports of you know people having children on the planes coming over. Wow. So, so any, so, any hmm? sense of the housing availabilities in the area in your part of the world once these folks are mustered out of the bases? Have you heard anything about plans for that? I have not. I know that that housing is a bit of an issue here. We have problems housing the the um, airmen who come in. And as far as where the uh, refugees may be redistributed, that's a process that could take months even into even years, depending on situation and availability um, nationwide. So I don't know the specifics of, what, of what's going to happen to, the, to these refugees. Um, I just know the official statements of who they are, that they are being vetted, they are being tested for COVID and, and other health, health issues. And, and there's really, it's really very limited information as to anything further. Yeah, it makes it difficult to report. There's no mm -hmm. doubt on that. Um, I, I'm also wondering, I, you know, again, uh, not to put the heel to you here, because it, obviously it's hard to get this kind of information, but these folks will need money in their pocket as well. I mean, it, it, it just seems very complicated, not that we shouldn't do it, I'm not saying that, but it just, when you really start to think about it, Resettling someone in a foreign country is a highly complicated uh, process. It's, it seems to me. Uh, yes, yes. From the things I've seen about it, that there's a, even a, a fact sheet that was put out put out about the refugee resettlement that about some of the like United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has put are interviewed first, but the the applicants for for the um. So the visas are first interviewed by the United Nations, and then they have, then the Department of State, then human, then a Homeland Security, and everyone, and everything else that goes into it. It's, it's and from the other reports I've seen is that there there is a lot of vetting going on. It's just different depending on the person and the people that are. My understanding of the people that are that are part of the fifty thousand were all um, contractors with the with with the allied forces in Afghanistan and it's them and their families that are coming over. So there's- Yeah, they would be the easiest to process, I would think, uh, first and quickly, yeah. And the proximity to, to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is interesting to me. So mm -hmm. since we, ha we had um, a victim down here, um, Al Marchand was a flight attendant that day and he passed. He was a, a retired um, Alamogordo public Public Service Department, department you know, before before they split up the police and fire departments, the every if you the first responders were the were DPS and 
and he was and he had retired from that and became a flight attendant and and he and he passed on that day mm. and we have a and we have a um a new york city fire firefighter that puts that puts on a a 9-11 um memorial every year um archie koneman so there's so there's a history of that here so it's all kind of coming around and along with all the other there's a lot of veterans here. In fact, I spoke to a Vietnam veteran yesterday who was talking about how it, it, anyone who was alive that during the fall of Saigon, whether they were on the ground or not, is, is noticing the similarities between the fall of Saigon and the fall of Kabul. Mm-hmm. Because, and we've, a lot of us have seen the photos next to each other that it's almost identical. It's just the faces are diff- the faces and um, dress is different. Isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> It's 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 it, it, and after the president promised it wouldn't be another Saigon, <laughs> not to bring that up, you know, but he did say it. Um, I'm I'm curious, you know, we've got your representative in the area, Yvette Harrell, uh, sounding an alarm about security uh, for some of these folks. Is that something that, in your sense, is widespread as a worry in the community, or is this more just a representative talking? You know, it's legit to put it on the table, certainly, yeah. but I'm I'm curious how widespread the fear is where you're reporting out of. Uh, I just from the comments I've seen, basically rumblings on the internet, there are some worries. And mm-hmm. even you know, speaking to my landlady today, she came by for a like a plumbing inspection. She was saying, "Well, what are your thoughts on this?" Well, I well, how do we know they're not terrorists coming in? How do you know this or that? And because from what I know is that these are people who've already been vetted to the nth degree before they even got on the plane. Right. And or maybe not before they got on the plane, but they were they were already in the process that there's going to be a lot of strange information going out there, whether it's um, true or not. And what, what um, representative Harrell says is what she says. And I haven't seen her statement lately, but the, the other um, uh, representatives, um, you know, Ben Ray Lujan and Martin Heinrich and such have, have, were very quick to put out statements and that, in support, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Representative Harrell is um, she's yeah, she marches to the beat of her own drummer most certainly, and I haven't seen her specific comment on this. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of what she does say is very indicative of what the community, of what the a large uh, part of the community thinks. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I could imagine. Um... You know, I, I just, I, again, one, my last question for you, I'm just trying to get a feel for down the road, which is awfully hard. And I'm not necessarily asking you to do this, uh, Nicole, yourself personally, because it's hard to imagine, like you said, the process could take months, if not up to a year, to get these folks, uh, you know, squared away. And I should backtrack and say, my understanding is these folks are going through another level of security, by the way, screening in Germany. At, at Runheim, at the big airport there, the American base there, before they come to the United States. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots of layers of, of vetting and security going on uh, that can happen. But uh, let me go back to my question. Any sense of how it might change the community down the road? Is there, is there a talk that, hey, if we end up having out of 50,000, 5,000 Afghan refugees in the Alamogordo area, uh, that's not a small amount of folks, kind of what if thing. And there would be impact for in positive and negative and everything in between. Any any talk like that going on at this point? Um, there's 
concern with the, among the among the the residents out here, but as far as anything official, I don't know. Yeah. And from just from other media reports of what of where these of where these refugees may be sent, they're probably going to be going to places that already have more of a a Muslim community. So that is here, there there really isn't much of, much of one. There's a yeah, there's a small Jewish community here. There's a it's but it's mostly a very Christian community here. So um, this would probably not be the best place um, as far as you know, already established community in that respect. Mm -hmm. So for, for their comfort, this, yeah, another community would probably be better suited, in my opinion. But as far yeah. as, and just talking to the you know, veteran yesterday, he was saying that, yeah, yeah that it's a, probably a good thing that they did bring them here, here to, is this part of New Mexico is very similar to that of that, of Afghanistan, it's mountainous and desert, and it's mm -hmm. the mountains aren't quite as high, but a lot of the terrain is very similar. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah, hey, I've heard that from uh, other Afghan folks, and I, I bet you're right. I bet you're right. It, part of the planning is to get these folks moved to a place where there is a more of established community, because we did have a first wave in the '80s, even here in Albuquerque, uh, on, back in the Mujahideen and original, original, <laughs> going back 2,500 years. One of the problems that was happening in, in Afghanistan recently uh, spurred a wave here. And so there is some established communities in New Mexico, but primarily here in, in Albuquerque, the Albuquerque area. Uh, Nicole Maxwell, I can't thank you enough. I know it's a difficulty trying to report out something that nobody wants to talk about anything. And I didn't want to put you in a bad spot here, but I thought you did brilliantly with it. And folks, please do know she's trying, but just know that. <laughs> and I've tried as well. We're getting nothing out of uh, Holloman at this point. so. Uh, you have, a, have you heard anything about a news conference or anything coming up? Just to, just to make sure I've got everything covered. Anything coming up we should know about? Um, not to my knowledge. I know that there's going to be a, uh, for, a for people living on base, there's going to be a, um, a public forum either today or tomorrow. Mm. So Is that going to be carried live, a live stream? Do you know? I don't know. I really don't know. Could you let me know if you find out? Just shoot me a, shoot me a quick note. Uh, sure. Yeah, that's something I think I might want to, we might want to at New Mexico PBS if it's in fact available as a live stream for the folks, so. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not certain if it is, and let me check on it. Just say, yeah, it just says Town Hall at the Honor Guard Pavilion, Building 25, starting at 6.30. Looks like it's going to be today. It's in person, and it's that if you have questions to call the number, call Public Affairs. Gotcha. So it yeah. doesn't, because usually they say if it's going to be live streamed or not, so. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, so it looks like it might not be, but with. Maybe there might be a recording. Who knows? Yeah. Hey, Nicole Maxwell, Alamogordo Daily News. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. I know you got stuff to do besides talk to me up here. So <laughs> appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Nicole. Guys, we'll be on Friday night, of course, at seven. We'll be touching on this issue as well as a couple of more. Uh, that it will be channel 5.1, of course, for New Mexico and focus on New Mexico PBS. So thank you to Nicole Maxwell, Alamogordo Daily News, and we will see you Friday night and next Wednesday at noon for another Facebook Live. Thank you. Most welcome. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Oh. Jim, going to clear us here in a sec. Yeah, I could tell by uh, this, this, the tone of the second evening.
Lots on the Afghan refugee resettlement efforts here in New Mexico on this week's show. Uh, just yesterday on Thursday in the afternoon, our senior producer, Matt Grubbs, was able to uh, sit down via Zoom with the deputy director of the Human Services Department in New Mexico, Angela Madrano, uh, and find out the latest information she had on the uh, Afghanistan refugees coming to New Mexico or already here in New Mexico um, and the plans to help these folks resettle and how taxing that will be on our infrastructure here in New Mexico. So we appreciate Angela Madrano's time and want to give you that here as a little bit extra content as well. So here's senior producer Matt Grubbs. Angela Madrano, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk about the refugee resettlement program. Um, I know you probably have the same questions that everyone else in New Mexico has at this point, which is how many people are going to be arriving from Afghanistan and when? Um, what do you know right now? Thank you, Matt. It's good to, to see you again. Um, New Mexico at this point, Human Services Department um, knows that Holloman Air Force Base has been selected as one of the receiving sites for refugees in New Mexico. Uh, I am not aware of any individuals that have arrived yet. That's not to say that they have not, um, but we are working very closely with our partners in New Mexico to prepare for the arrival. One of the things that I've heard um, from uh, officials at the White House is that not everyone who comes to Holloman Air Force Base or to Fort Bliss is going to be relocated in New Mexico. These are just the military installations that have been identified. Do you have a sense of what portion might be coming to New Mexico, um, or is that still up in the air right now? It's still up in the air right now, Matt. Uh, it's very, very hard to know how many refugees will choose to resettle in New Mexico. Um, but we are in close communication with our contractor, Lutheran Family Services, who will be providing many of the services that the refugees will need as they transition um, to Holloman or who choose to resettle in New Mexico. That's an important point, I think. Uh, it's a choice for them? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Yes, they, they may, some of the refugees may arrive in New Mexico with family that are already located in the United States, either in New Mexico or in another state. Uh, refugees may arrive with no family members in the United States, uh, but may have some resources available to them. And these individuals will make a choice about where they'd like to reside within the US. And um, some may arrive with no resources and no family members available to them. And those are the ones I anticipate we would be providing the most assistance to. Okay, and you mentioned that Lutheran Family Services is a contractor with the state to, to handle a lot of this. When do they sort of um, pick up the baton and start coordinating some of these services? At what point in the process? That's a great question, Matt. You know, they've been working very, very hard with their national um, part or their national uh, organization to be in close communication about those individuals that may be uh, wishing to resettle in New Mexico because there are other military bases where 
these individuals are arriving to, they may choose New Mexico and be transported to New Mexico to resettle in. Okay. We spoke to a, a man named Mullah Akbar who emigrated from Afghanistan in the late 1980s. He owns a business down in Albuquerque. Um, he pointed out that while it's small, there is a community of, of Afghan families in New Mexico and it's growing. What role do they play in this process? Gosh, Matt, I would assume that they would help to make this transition as smooth as possible for them and hopefully um, step in to help uh, volunteer with Lutheran Family Services or any of the other faith-based organizations that are gonna be providing assistance to these individuals and help them feel welcome. Is this the sort of situation where a person or a, um, a family needs some sort of sponsorship to be able to enter the U.S. or are they able to enter on their own through um, some of the immigration status um, statuses, I guess, that the, that the federal government designates? Yeah, they're, they're not required to have a sponsor, to my knowledge, Matt. So some of these individuals may not know anyone in the United States and um, we'll have to make a decision about where they'd like to, to settle. Do you have any COVID concerns or is that something that's probably well taken care of by the time the state or uh, Lutheran Family Services ends up interacting with these folks? I don't have a lot of information about the COVID testing. It's my understanding that they are being tested upon arrival into the US, but I don't have confirmation of that from any formal source. Okay, I know we're just in the early stages right now. Are there any comparisons that you can make to the, to the influx of Latin immigrants and asylum seekers that we saw in, in 2019? I wasn't involved in that effort, Matt, so I can't speak to that in my career. This is the largest uh, effort I've worked with and partnering with our team at HSD um, and working with Lutheran Family Services, I'm finding this to be a very educational process for myself as well as we go through these steps. Certainly. The program, it, to my understanding, it relies on federal funds or does the state kick in money too? It's a federally funded program, Matt. They provide, they provide us with a grant of award each year specifically for this refugee effort. It's the Office of Refugee Resettlement Office that awards New Mexico funding. Uh, in federal fiscal year 20, we were awarded 1.2 million. Uh, thus far in, in federal fiscal year 21, we've been awarded 1.1 million. That sounds, it's millions of dollars, of course, but it doesn't sound like a lot. Do you anticipate needing more? Depending on the number of individuals that choose to resettle in New Mexico, Matt, you are spot on. We may need additional funding, and I have not yet heard of um, any potential funding coming our way as a result of this effort. So we are staying in co close communication with our federal partners about that. I know that uh, part of your job is not just speaking to the media, but talking to legislators too. Are you getting a lot of, of similar questions from them? I haven't yet, Matt, but I'm headed to a legislative committee where this may come up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will let you get to that. Uh, Human Services Department Deputy Secretary Angela Madrano, we really thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. Take care. We should mention, too, if you haven't listened to uh, our most recent episodes, 
not the one that released this past Monday, but a week ago on Friday, we talked to a couple different folks about the Afghan resettlement uh, projects or efforts here in New Mexico. One is a business owner and uh, immigrant, Mullah Akbar, and then Jeff Hall with the Lutheran Family Services of the Rocky Mountains as they are uh, trying to gather resources and clothing and, and all the necessities for these refugees as they come here to New Mexico. We encourage you to go back and give that a listen if you haven't. And uh, we have more perspectives to bring you this week. Uh, the Asian American community, especially the Vietnamese community here in New Mexico, no doubt have been through a roller coaster of emotions in the last couple of weeks, especially seeing those helicopters take off from the uh, U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago as the situation really went south very quickly. Lots of folks pointed out the similarities between those images and the fall of Saigon in the 1970s. And uh, like a lot of places, New Mexico has a very rich Vietnamese community. And we were fortunate to sit down with Tam Lee. He works at Sandia and is also an immigrant from Vietnam. And as you will hear, he was a very young boy when that happened. But uh, just the story of what it took for them to get to the United States to get resettled. It is an amazing journey. We are so appreciative of Tam and his time and his willingness to share his story with us. And we want to do that with you now. Uh, here again is producer Matt Grubbs. Tam Lee, thank you so much for taking uh, a few minutes to share your experiences, um, talk about what you're seeing in um, Afghanistan, and uh, what's ahead for some of these folks who are, who are coming to the U.S. Your experience was um, coming to the U.S. Um, from Vietnam, and you said that's in the, in the early 80s? Yes. Okay. Um, when, when did you leave? Why did you leave? And what is that journey like? You were just a little kid, obviously, but, but what do you recall? Um, so a lot of what I am recalling is through the experiences and stories that uh, come from my, my mom, actually. So back in, uh, you know, the early 80s, I was uh, a young child. And so we, uh, you know, to escape kind of the uh, political and, and kind of religious uh, kind of uh, issues that are going on in the country, uh, my family decided to to immigrate and, and doing that through uh, you know, basically escaping on, on boats. And so uh, we split up the family to make sure that we have a better chance of actually making it. So uh, my mom, my, myself and my older brother, uh, you know, left on a boat. And so, uh, you know, there was a lot of difficulties there, but then we eventually made it and was, uh, was able to then uh, be brought to a different country. Uh, my other half of the, our, our family was then split up. My dad, my other brother and my sister uh, attempted the same escape and basically were captured and returned back to Vietnam. And at that point, they were uh, imprisoned uh, for a while after that. And so our family was separated for, for 10 years before uh, they were able to then come over uh, with us over here to, to the U.S. Um, there's probably a tendency of a lot of people to see these pictures from afar and assume that, you know, if you could just get to the airport um, or if you can just get on a boat, um, then you're on your way and eventually it'll be, you know, a great story to tell. But that's clearly not what's going on. Um, being separated from half your family for a decade sounds just 
uh, gut-wrenching. It, it had to be, uh, I can't even imagine setting off on that sort of journey to begin with. What's that like? Yeah, um, I mean, the stories that I hear from, from my mom is basically, you know, there's, it's lawless, right? There's, there's, no, there's no rule out there, you know, as soon as you're, 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 you're attempting something like this. Uh, basically, there's a lot of stories of pirates, a lot of, uh, you know, um, lawlessness out there, basically, uh, you know, looting and, 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 and um, a lot of violence on, on some of the, you know, the, the people that are attempting to do this. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of uh, anguish, of course, with, without food, without water trying to actually but that isn't quite what is important right you don't think of that at the time you're basically thinking you know for the future of my my children for the future of myself i need to get out of here because you know we've seen uh how life was uh you know it, it within a, a different rule and so uh, at the time they weren't thinking about uh you know those types of uh, necessities it was just getting out and so whatever it is to take uh uh, it takes to get out there at that point. So there's an, an intervening period of, of five, six years where you're living, I would imagine, a fairly uncomfortable existence in your home country. Um, what are the family stories that you hear about that time? Yeah, uh, basically after, you know, the, kind of the takeover, uh, there's a reorganization, right? The, the, the new uh, government or, or entity is, is looking to then uh, take over lots of, of the property. So um, my family uh, wasn't, you know, was a little bit well off, right? I mean, we're not like uh, extremely uh, impoverished or anything. We, we did have homes and things like that. At that point, the, the property was taken over by uh, the new uh, government and, and, and new uh, ownership there. And so uh, a lot of the families lost their property, lost their homes. Uh, have been relocated to to other areas uh, and, and basically have to start over even even within their own country. You said that you spent some time in Thailand um, for a while uh, before eventually making your way to the U.S. Tell me about that part of the journey, if you would. Right. So, uh, you know, our boat was then picked up by uh, a, a U.S. naval uh, ship. And then uh, then they would um, try to find a location for us as refugees. And then we were sent to uh, a nearby country uh, of Thailand. And there we would have a refugee camp uh, in which we would live, uh, you know, on the shores, uh, in a, you know, at a, at a camp and living off just simple, you know, rice and whatever fish uh, was there. And so uh, this minimum uh, uh, just to have a, a decent livelihood there. Sure. Um, and you came to the U.S. Um, but how long was that whole whole journey? Um, I believe we were in Thailand about six months or so uh, before uh, a family uh, would uh, um, uh, would would accept and, and work with us. And then, then at that point, we would then be uh, sent to the U.S. Uh, and have kind of a partnering a family to be able to help us kind of uh, start off in the U.S. I, I can't imagine what kind of a culture shock that is um, to go from your home, which is totally familiar, um, to living on a beach in a camp and then to the U.S. with, uh, you know, everything that comes along with moving to the U.S. in the 80s, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, it's not like we're coming over here with suitcase and luggage of our belonging. It's just you know, whatever on our back and whatever we could 
could bring. Um, and of course, you know, it's basically nothing. So coming over here with my mom and my my uh, older brother, uh, which is probably, uh, you know, a couple of years older than myself, so probably five, six and, and three myself. And with my mom coming over, it's basically her starting all over from scratch with basically nothing. We talk or we hear about things like baseball and apple pie, um, but in so many other ways, yours, um, the immigration experience, leaving everything and coming over here with nothing is the definitive American experience, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, a lot of the immigrants that are coming over, basically they're, they're coming over for a better life. And what they started out with over there was, uh, you know, not having much in the first place. Uh, but then it's the hopes of having, uh, you know, more and being able to, to uh, uh, you know, have for your, you know, provide for your children and things like that. The hopes to come over here to, to be able to start that. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the people that are coming over now, it, is exactly that, right? They they basically are coming over here in the hopes of uh, someone that can can support them and and uh, you know uh, you know just to be able to to help them to be able to start something uh, you know here. Certainly, uh, you talked a little bit about seeing images of helicopters and planes in Kabul and and things like that, and it um, has such a, a direct parallel to the scenes that your mother described. Um, to you, um, you know, with Saigon in 1975. Um, what do you hear, um, you know, from others in the community about seeing this sort of thing? I mean, it, it brings a lot of emotions, right? Uh, it, it, such parallels, you know, understanding that, you know, what type of changes or, or what type of things that, that, you know, would be coming back to the country that, that is so long, uh, you know, been away from uh, for another um, political uh, a power to take over and, and to kind of set everything back from from where where it is now is is a heart wrenching right it, it's one of the difficult things to be able to to uh, to experience you know right? understanding where the country was where it is now and then actually understanding that it could be uh, going back to where it was and, and, and losing all that uh, you know development attraction it, it, it's something that a lot of people are actually fearing now. Right. Uh, and, and understanding what, you know, they have to go back uh, and experience again. If you don't come from that family, it's hard to understand um, kind of the fear, the confusion, the chaos that's happening right now. Um, is this something that you talk about with your kids, you know, as, as they're seeing what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. I talked with my, my son uh, quite a bit on, you know, the parallels and some of the concerns and, and why, you know, people are leaving. A lot of people don't understand, you know, what, what is the point, why why are they leaving? It looks fine, you know, if they just, you know, accept it. There's lots of change that's, go, that's going about. They These are the people that have experienced in the past, uh, you know, how the country has been ruled, how the country has been run and, and understand some of the, 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 um, the, 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 you know, what happens over there. And so uh, be a little bit open-minded it's, it's really good for for the kids to understand that you know there's there's uh experiences over there that that they have experienced and there's good reason for for them to have to really try to attempt i mean these are uh you know uh not safe <laughs> methods of, of trying to, to leave the country but at the moment all they're thinking about you know is, is the future and and, and um, how to to better their future um before we go, have you been back to Vietnam? And if so, what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been back 
uh, several times to visit uh, family. I still have lots of uh, aunts and uncles uh, over there. So uh, I've been back maybe three years out of the uh, 30 so years I've been here. Um, mostly, you know, going back there and visiting family and things like that for, for New Year's. Uh, the experience is, is, is kind of overwhelming, you know, to, to go from uh, the U.S. And, and going back to Vietnam and seeing, uh, you know, kind of the hardships and kind of the, the, the living situations over there. Uh, there's, you know, definitely lots of opportunity here that if you if you work hard, you'd be able to achieve over there. There's the, the opportunity is not quite there. It's, 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 it's difficult to to rise above and, and be able to to make something um, more for yourself there. Sure. Well, Tam Lee, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this and I appreciate you uh, opening up. Absolutely. Time to switch gears now, head back to the line opinion roundtable. Tomorrow, that is Saturday, is a big day for lots of folks as the COVID unemployment relief funds uh, dry up, they expire, they've been in place through much of the pandemic, and uh, it amounts to, for some people, up to $300, $400 a week that will be gone. We know our unemployment rate in New Mexico, highest in the country, tied for highest at 7.9%. Lots of efforts to get people back into the workforce, but a challenging time for sure. Those that are hit the hardest are the self-employed, gig employees, contract workers, and uh, there's a lot to digest there in what we do to, to bring the workforce back to as full impact as possible. So let's toss it back to uh, Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. This weekend will be anything but a holiday for thousands of New Mexicans as pandemic unemployment benefits come to an end on Saturday. Those hit hardest will be the self-employed, contract workers, and so-called gig employees. Now, despite encouraging budget news, New Mexico is still among the worst states when it comes to unemployment. The state has gained back just 44% of its pre-pandemic job losses, many of which are in those groups I just mentioned. Now, that loss is about $300 a week, Ed. What's your expectation here? Will people get off the sidelines, so to speak, and fill those vacancies quickly, or are we headed for a crash of some sort? Well, it depends on how you look at this. And, and there are really two types of employees who are still receiving benefits. Uh, and this is just anecdotal information. You know, you know I, I read stories about those individuals who are going to be put in a very difficult position once this benefit ends. They're, they're going to struggle, as you mentioned, the self-employed mm -hmm. uh, are, are one of those categories. But again, anecdotally, we hear the stories out there about those individuals who uh, don't want to go back to work or are hesitant, to, you know, because they make more money mm -hmm. with these with these benefits. So how that's going to divide up when it, when these benefits end, uh, I, I think maybe it'll force a few more people into some of these uh, many job openings that that uh, that exist out there. So I think we need to look a little closer at those who fall into these exceptional categories, those who are making every effort that they can to work, but their circumstances. Uh, are making it difficult and, and i tend to think that that is the minority of individuals that uh, that are they're really affected by it uh, but of course you know we would need more statistical data to find out exactly where uh, where the, these people stand i'm sure 
if you talk to the workers out there who've been out since the economy has has opened up, they're probably elated to have a little more help. You know, I understand that they're, you know, being really pressured, uh, working a lot of overtime, and they probably could use a little help too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll continue to help the economy. Uh, there are, are businesses who are only open part-time because they don't have the workers. So That's right. you know, bringing more workers into this workforce with all the available, available jobs, I think, uh, is really going to continue to benefit the, the economy. Good point there. Uh, Rebecca, the narrative has been that if you remove benefits, more people will get jobs. But data from the Labor Department and other financial services and payroll companies that I've seen show that any increase in unemployment is small and it doesn't counteract the lack of spending that happens after the federal boost goes away. Low-income people spend less and they're only marginally more likely to get a job uh, if we think about it. That doesn't bode well for us when you add all those things together. No, if you're looking at the, you know, as we had discussed earlier, the, the the new money, a lot of that new money is coming as a result of the the expansion of the unemployment benefits. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it has been beneficial to New Mexico that we've been able to support our own and generate more tax revenue, you know, that, that goes into the bottom line. You know, as far as uh, do we continue to expand it or, or what the, the right answer is, I'm, I'm with Ed, you know, like I... I I have had to rely on unemployment before, as has my husband, mm-hmm. you know, and to feel other anything other than a complete sympathy for people who are really genuinely looking for work is just wrong. But we, we know there are people out there who aren't even trying, and we know that there are jobs, good jobs, that can't be filled despite how many people are looking for work. And, you know, it happened with us. We had three different candidates for a full-time job with room and board ask if they could uh, accept the job in September when their unemployment insurance ran out. This was in June. Wow. So, you know, we do know it, it's it's real. It's not, I think it's, it's terrible to make a generalization that everyone is not looking even though they say they're working. And it's just, this is a tough one. Yeah, it is. Sophie, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rebecca. Do you have another point there? Sorry about that. So I, I, I got to think there's naturally going to be some heartburn you know, among people who have had a rough go of it during COVID, but, you know, have been able to make ends meet without unemployment. I've talked to a lot of the folks, Uber drivers, for example, just had this conversation mm-hmm. just the other night. Is that, is that likely or maybe reasonable dynamic, do you think? You know, I, I, I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a tough dynamic right now. And, yeah. and yes, there are people who are, who are working and who are electing potentially to work jobs that would give them less than unemployment insurance might. One of the things that I think is really notable is the really, I mean, it's a local conversation. It's also a nationwide conversation about the value of work Mm. and what we pay our employees. And I think it's worth noting Mm -hmm. um, legislative finance committee data here in New Mexico shows that statewide unemployment for jobs that offer more than $60,000 a year increased 13.6% 13.6% since January of last year. Wow. Um, but but un, but employment and jobs making less than 27,000 decreased. So people, you know, those are not necessarily apples to apples to apples, but I mean I think when you think of the $27,000 a year job um, and the difficulty that some businesses are having in filling those jobs well, you know what? It costs money to work. Mm-hmm. If you're a parent, childcare costs money. Transportation costs money. You may have uniform costs. All of those things, um, you know, we were sort of getting away with not factoring. Businesses were getting away with not factoring that in into their um, 
employment offers, the amount of money that they were going to pay, mm -hmm. we see locally and nationally wages rising because of this pressure. Right. To fill those lower paid is, jobs. Is that happening here, Sophie, in your view, anecdotally or my otherwise? Under, my understanding is that it is it is happening okay. here. I mean, Presbyterian, I think, is a good example. The ah. hospital is has raised its minimum wage across the state to $15. And I want to say Santa Fe is 17, mm -hmm. 17 or 20. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. But mm -hmm. but yeah, so we are seeing some of those pressures. Well, you know, what we've talked about for a while now is for an individual who is making minimum wage, let's say at Walmart, they're accessing social services. They're accessing SNAP benefits, um, other other assistance programs, and so we are paying as an electorate, as you know, as like I should say, as a as a country, as a state, we are paying for those low paid, low wage jobs, um, and so we're, you know, it's coming out of our pockets anyway. Right. <laughs> um, employers are screaming about this is too expensive for us. This we're you know we're not making enough money, yeah. but this may just be reality now. Good you have there. to pay more. Yeah. And real quick, the lack of child care among the lower paid uh, professions that Sophie was just mentioned. It's By the profound. way, I should, I, I should mention as well, uh, Sophie, your point about the 27G or under, it's 22000 a year if you make minimum wage full time That's for right. an entire year. It's 22000 That's right. All right. And, you know, it's, it's been an issue getting people back into the workforce, this idea of child care. Are these positions likely to get filled? Does that matter for servers, retail workers who might have to lean on family for child care? See what I'm saying here? It's very complicated. If one piece of this is not working, the whole thing just sort of unravels if you're a single parent. Absolutely, Gene. It, mm -hmm. is, it is an issue for, for many in my business. You know, I practice uh, family law and I, and I deal with a lot of families and family-related issues and child care issues and things of that sort. So I can, I can see from a, from a perspective that for, for many out there, uh, men and women who are primary uh, caretakers of their of their children. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an issue. This is an issue. If you're a single, if you're a single parent, if you're not a single parent, you know, if you're co-parenting and and you're both tr trying to work to raise children, yep. childcare is an issue. If you both work the same schedule, uh, often you don't have. You know, in New Mexico, we think everyone is surrounded by family, but you often don't don't have that with with others. Sometimes mm -hmm. you know they have nothing to rely on but childcare. And if we're slow to moving back to to really opening up the doors of many of these childcare facilities, uh, you know, families, parents, single or otherwise, are going to have to make that decision. So it's a reality that I think requires, you know, just a, a closer look as to what effect that is really having and what yeah. options might be available to That's right. overcome that. Yeah, right. good points there. This is yet another issue we'll be tracking in the coming weeks as we start to see unemployment numbers coming in. Just minutes after that long conversation on those unemployment benefits expiring, we uh, were able to talk to the U.S. Secretary of the Department of Labor, Marty Walsh. Correspondent Antonia Gonzalez checked in with him, talked about a lot of different things. We'll bring you some more of that in a future episode, especially in terms of the indigenous workforce and what the Labor Department is doing to help out there. But we wanted to get right to him to ask about something that you may have heard a little bit about, and that is whether or not states should use some of the other COVID relief funds to shore up and continue these unemployment benefits uh, for a while longer. And so we want to fill you in with what he had to say about that. 
um, and we'll let Gene take it from there. I'm Gene Grant here at New Mexico PBS. We just finished recording our show for this week, but I wanted to share some bonus content. As you know, federal pandemic unemployment benefits run out on Saturday. My colleague Antonio Gonzalez spoke with U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh about what he expects the impact to be and whether New Mexico might be wise to use unspent pandemic emergency funding to extend that benefit. Here's a bit of that conversation. Should states like New Mexico use federal COVID-19 relief aid to extend expiring unemployment benefits for people? Well, that's an option that we, we allow the states to make that decision. They're gonna have to make it, uh, each state will have to make their own decision. But I think if you're a governor, in, in, and I, I was with the governor in Mexico last week, uh, if you're a governor, you have to make a determination on where you are with the virus, where you are with the Delta variant, how, how high is the numbers, uh, and, and what's the risk of people going back to work? So that's going to be uh, an individual state-by-state -state concern or, or, or opportunity to do that. But, but myself and Secretary Yellen uh, did uh, allow, when I say allowed, we wrote, a, we wrote an opinion saying that states can use the American Rescue Plan money that they have to uh, continue on uh, unemployment benefits. Back to the line opinion panel now. And uh, the Department of Education recently released a draft plan, and that was to uh, Native American leaders across the state. Uh, and that is because it is a draft plan on the continued efforts to address the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. No doubt you've heard us talk about that before. Basically, a judge ruled in 2018 that New Mexico had failed to provide an equitable and sufficient educational experience for all of New Mexico students, uh, underserved populations, including Native American students, were not getting the same type of education. It's been an ongoing uh, issue that uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham inherited and has tried to take on and throw the COVID pandemic into the midst of that. We know how that has turned education upside down and sideways, uh, but this draft plan is designed to sort of create a pathway moving forward, although as you will hear from our line opinion panels, still a little short on details at this point. One of the big issues always is broadband and connectivity, and there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect even there between what this draft plan talks about in terms of uh, a baseline of connectivity for students and what the judge in the case uh, is calling for as well. So a lot to be decided there. The hope is to have this draft plan finalized in early December to get public feedback before the start of the legislative session. But as you'll hear in our conversation, tribal leaders find that insufficient because of ceremonies and the holiday season. There won't be a lot of time, really just four weeks uh, from the time it's supposed to be released to the start of the legislative session. So lots of work to be done here. And let's jump right into that conversation. The COVID-19 pandemic is still wreaking havoc on New Mexico's schools, and those lingering challenges come during a time when the state is still struggling to improve educational opportunities for all students. The Associated Press recently got a hold of a draft plan by outgoing Education Secretary Ryan Stewart to address those inequalities, which were at the center of the infamous Yazi Martinez lawsuit. 
But that report, which is more than 100 pages, is short of specific ideas, assignments, or programs. In fact, it seems to fall short of many of the recommendations of Judge Matthew Wilson, especially in terms of broadband improvements for the state's most vulnerable populations. And Rebecca, several years into this, should we be further along in solving these inequalities? Or, got to ask, has COVID thrown all of that out the window? Or should we just still be chugging along here despite COVID? Well, you know, I, like many, are a little disconcerted or a little dis discouraged, sorry, that we don't have a better plan of action. But I also do want to, like, acknowledge and be sympathetic to the public education department because no one at that time could have seen what 2020 and 2021 wow. had in store for students and, and educators and families. Um, with that being said, you know, in addition to the things that the court had asked uh, uh, specifically be, be addressed by the public education department, the other thing that is, that is missing is any mention of charter schools. Oh. And, and the idea that, you know, there are there are charter schools in New Mexico that are providing truly exceptional academic outcomes for the populations named in this lawsuit. And I would really love to see our leadership looking into the best practices mm -hmm. at charter schools and then transferring them to the broader education community. We've got, you know, case after case after case, specifically with these with these student groups, that if we would just acknowledge charter schools are not the enemy, mm -hmm. maybe we can work together to, to learn to benefit the students. It's something worth looking into. That's a very interesting point you make there, Rebecca. I hadn't th really thought about that, the uh, charter schools not being sort of highlighted there, even though there's some excellence to be shown. I got to think if I'm in the public school system, you may not necessarily want <laughs> to be highlighting charter school success, but we can all get that. But Sophie, swinging to you on that, uh, sure. you know, the plan just mentioned, I just mentioned, is just a draft. Should we get all worked up about this as just a draft or, or should we be a little bit further down the road at this point? on all these well, issues. Well, you, you know, there there is some concern that, that mm -hmm. it isn't further down the road. I mean, I think State Representative Derek Lente, uh, who uh, represents um, represents a number of, of Native American mm -hmm. constituents mm -hmm. and has been a real advocate for that community, says, you know, like, look, we only got so much time to review when this is not a draft, when you're when you're ready to actually show it to us. Mm -hmm. um, and we need that time in order to be able to give effective feedback in advance of the next legislative session. I, I don't think he's wrong about that. That, sure. that um, at, even at 100 pages of draft, let's assume it gets bigger, um, and folks are going to need time to read, digest, reflect, and respond. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's not a lot of that. So, I mean, one thing that I think is notable here is that this was not, from what I understand, an official release of this document to constituencies. Mm. And so we're still waiting to see what everything will be. Mm -hmm. Ed, one of the specific recommendations of this new plan includes an increase in pay for teachers who have secondary Spanish or Native American language certif certifications. And that makes sense in terms of attracting teachers to, in hard to fill positions, but teacher recruitment seems to be just this monumental hurdle in general in New Mexico. Is it time for more radical thinking on this front than you know what we discussed a little bit earlier, that it just can't be about money? Something else has to be kind of introduced here. Yeah, again, it's, it's all about <clears throat> appealing the teaching profession to as many people as possible. Maybe we've had periods of time where teaching positions were filled. There was something about being a, a teacher that really attracted a lot of promising uh, people in our, in our state. But we seem to have lost that, just like we've lost a little bit law enforcement. I'm not sure really what the, what the reasons are. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, with regard to this, to this plan, 
uh, full disclosure here, I was a member of the Latino Education Task Force, which was a driving force behind the Martinez side of the lawsuit. Ah. And so there is probably a little bit of frustration going on because we've been working on this for over a decade. I remember having conversations close to a decade ago about how, how we're gonna move this forward. Now, if we're just looking post lawsuit, we say, well, I'll give them a little bit of time. Well, if you're looking at the, the those who need the help, those students who needed the help, many of them are probably 18, 20 years old and they just missed the boat. Now we're, we're, we're trying to help out those who are, who are up and coming. But any little bit helps. You, you know, you, you mentioned teacher pay and, mm-hmm. and teacher incentive. You know, I, I won't knock anything that really brings in, you know, those promising individuals and helps those out who are really contributing to the solution of making our education system better. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, the idea of broadband in this, uh, back to the broadband issue in the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit, Judge Wilson, you know, set a standard for high-speed internet for students in the public education department has its own standard which is actually less than that is there still a major disconnect on this issue and the importance of connectivity i mean we've been talking about this you know ed just mentioned 10 years we've been talking about this for 10 years as well at least at least yeah Yeah. major disconnect especially when again these guidelines were kind of put in place the saying what the what the judge said this is what i expect to see in the public education department saying like that well what we do was already enough that was all pre-pandemic and that was when like we didn't know how important two-way video communication between students and teachers could be Not to mention, there is a there is a, a very large uh, a number of these students, again, specifically these student groups, that it wouldn't make a difference because we don't ha- we are not doing enough to get internet to those students and broadband hotspots. You know, don't Wi-Fi hotspots don't make a difference if you don't get cell service That's out right. there. So, That's like right. we, it's it's kind of like we put these we put these um, benchmarks in place. It's got you've got to be able to to do, to do better for these students and. It, it, it's not just on the, the public education department. Our entire state, our communities as a whole, need to rally around these particular student groups and do better for them in terms of community support, uh, at what we're doing, you know, that, that wraparound support and, and how we're getting them better food, how we're getting, you know, addressing food insecurity and, and mm-hmm. broadband and all, all the things. It's such a big, a big issue. We, we all have to take more responsibility in helping. Good point there. So just a couple of minutes left here, but the governor has tried to get the Yazzie Martinez case thrown out, as recall, but the judge has ruled the state has not done enough yet. And you might recall, I'm sure, former Governor Susana Martinez had vowed to appeal that initial ruling before Governor uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham reversed course after winning 2018. Is, Is that lawsuit still doing its job in terms of forcing the state to address education inequalities especially considering we haven't seen the needle move much in three years, honestly. Well, I mean, I, th- I think as long as the ruling stands, it is it is something that the, govern- the governor, whomever the government- governor might be at that time, mm-hmm. um, at least has some sort of obligation. There is some legal obligation there to, to address it. Right. Um, it doesn't seem like... Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to say, yeah, we agree with that in principle, and to a certain extent, to what Rebecca was saying, it's another thing entirely to actually do it. Right. Um, and sort of circling back to our earlier conversation, um, how big a chunk of that 1.4 billion would really, you know, aggressive work toward satisfying this um, this obligation? How big a chunk would it take of that money? I don't know, but I hope that that will be part of the conversation. 
It's almost tailor-made, you know, Ed, again, real quick, for a one-time expense hit. That's what I'm talking here. Why can't we rally around this idea of broadband and say, by a date certain, we're going to be at X? Why is that so hard? And gee, it shouldn't be, right? I mean, it, it seems to be pretty straightforward, but what it requires is leadership. And to take this issue, someone takes responsibility, takes this issue by the horns and someone please by the horns that's all we're asking make, that's right and makes it happen that's because right it, it, it's doable that's but right it's going to take someone to, to, uh, to be that driving force behind it and make it happen we're all asking that's a wrap on our line opinion panel this week we thank you all for your research and insights and be sure to engage with us on any of the topics we tackled this week on the line by reading reaching out excuse me on facebook instagram or twitter So as you can tell, we're hard at work each and every week trying to bring the best information and discussions to you, our audience. We so appreciate you listening in, and we really love it when you give us your own ideas or feedback on any of the topics we discussed. You can leave us a message here uh, in the podcast, or you can reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. Just search for NM in Focus. And you can also send us an email anytime at nmfocus at nmpbs.org. We really do appreciate that. And again, give us suggestions of things you want us to tackle in upcoming shows as well. We appreciate that always. Going to end with a little bit of extra bonus content as we like to do coming from uh, Facebook Live this week where we did our weekly warm-up tune-up for the start of the show this, again, often is for us to work out any technical kinks, but also to help get the line panelists geared up for our taping and also be able to cover a few stories that we aren't able to cover in the show. But we think it's important to bring it to you here. We call it One More Thing. And as usual, uh, surprised and very interested to hear what the line panelists bring to this conversation. So with that, here is One More Thing. I'm Gene Grant. I'm here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with a line opinion panelist joining me on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we tradi traditionally like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. Let me start with my man, Ed Perea. Ed, what's going on this week in your world? What's your one more thing? Well, Gene, we see, we read a little bit of good news yeah. about the uh, metro area's crime crisis. Uh, we know that we've been talking about this crisis for years. Mm -hmm. Statistics uh, seem to be going up and up and up. We're all aware of the homicide record, the unfortunate record that we are seeing. Uh, and of course, you know, this year we'll break a, an unfortunate all-time uh, number of homicides in the city. However, the Albuquerque Police Department reported that in some categories, primarily the property crime categories, that some of those numbers are coming down. Mm -hmm. I think you know, it's uh, it's fortunate to say that uh, that we are no longer number one in the number of auto thefts right. in in the country. We've slipped a little to six. I guess there's always something to to cheer about, uh, but hopefully, you know, it's it's a you know it, it's an opening of of better things to come. Uh, it's uh, it's not an easy problem to tackle. There are a lot of component parts to it, but uh, as long as we're seeing some progress, I think it's it's something that we could build off of. I'm going to have to agree with you there, Ed. You know, falling out of the top five for stolen cars, that is a step forward. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. We've been, 
You know, even in this university, UNM, CNM, you know this. I mean, the stolen car thing has been a tremendous problem all over the city. It, has this been attributable to, to any one specific thing, Ed, in your view? What's happened here that has caused these numbers to drop? What are we doing well, better? Know, I, I, well, you know, and I'm not sure. I think you really have to look at, you need more detail to ter determine exactly what's going on. We noticed mm -hmm. that, you know, the RAND studies show that, you know, the same, that, uh, you know, uh, what is it, 20% of the offenders are responsible for 80% of the crime. And right. so, you know, what has happened, you know, those people who are stealing cars, are, are they are they incarcerated or are, are there certain things that are taking place so that it minimizes the number of times that they will steal mm -hmm. a vehicle or what things are taking place within within our system right or, or you look at the, uh, the, the the top the five in front of us and maybe what are they doing wrong you know it's, it's hard to say whether we're doing something right or, mm -hmm. or not without more data but you know i'm optimistic um i I'm, I'm hoping we're doing something right but if we are doing something right, that may be a recipe for improving some other areas. And so we need to take a, a closer look at, uh, at if we are doing something right that's affected the crime rate, that we do more of it and maybe expand it to other areas. Mm, good point there. Sophie, did you have a point on that? Yeah, I was just going to say that at the same time that the, that the auto thefts are down, I have been hearing that thefts of catalytic converters are up. And oh, and apparently that happened to Rebecca. It's happened to oh, a number of people I know. No and the and our auto mechanic has said, "Don't park your car outside if you can help it." Um, and so I wonder if, when we get to the end of this, we'll discover that that these are just more efficient, um, <laughs> right? as opposed to you don't have to take the whole car when you need the catalytic converter. But this is a really, I mean, to Ed's point, this is a really. Um, persistent problem that we've had here. And I, I think he, he makes a really good point about, you know, when we're on these lists, it may be that we're doing better, maybe other states are doing worse, and mm -hmm. it'll remain to, to be seen. You know, I, this, I, am I right, Ed, that overall numbers are down, though? The overall numbers are down, and, and you're right, So Again, we're not 100% sure whether we're doing something right. It just, we may be making it a little more difficult to have your car stolen or manufacturers, or, you know, yeah. the, you'd have to look at the types of cars that have been stolen. Is there a reduction in those types of cars in our right. community? Because we know the newer cars are more difficult to steal. And so there's a lot of things to, to look at in order to determine exactly what's, what's taking place. But we'll take the good news. Those are two good points. You're right. We'll take the good news anytime. And uh, Sophie makes a good point. We did a Facebook Live on this very issue of catalytic converter thefts about a month and a half ago. It's a big problem here. It's a big, and Santa Fe, and Cruces, and everywhere. So, uh, Sophie, while I got you, let me ask you for your one more thing. Thank you, Ed. Appreciate that. those points, by the way. Uh, your one well, more thing like, this week. Yeah, just like the national news is blowing up, social media are blowing up mm -hmm. over the Texas um, Texas abortion law that was allowed to yep. remain on the books. The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, decided not to um, enjoin it. Um, and you might be thinking, oh, that's Texas. We're not Texas. We're New Mexico. But we have known for a long time that what happens with abortion in Texas does affect New Mexico, as New Mexico has more progressive laws about mm -hmm abortion rights. Um, I think one thing that we can anticipate seeing is that Texans with means, Texas Texans with funds, will be coming to states like New Mexico. Um, one of the terrible realities when you, when you outlaw, effectively outlaw, as Texas has done, abortion in, a, in any one area, 
Um, people don't stop getting abortions. Um, they get more dangerous ones, more expensive ones, mm -hmm. um, but that the need that the need persists. And so, you know, this is a, an area of great concern here amongst uh, New Mexico abortion activists and providers. Glad you mentioned that. I'm, I'm thinking, Sophie, at some point as this plays out a little bit, I would love to do a Facebook Live on this very issue because I was thinking the exact same thing. What is the upshot for New Mexico? What does this mean for New Mexico? You know, I don't want to get dramatic here and talk about, you know, rings of abortion clinics on the New Mexico side of the state border. But at some point, like you said, abortions don't stop. And if you can't get one or if you have, you're in danger of being ratted out by some deputized person hanging out in a street corner in Texas now, where are you going to go? You're probably going to go to New Mexico, it would seem to me. So, yeah. It seems likely. And, and abortion rights are are um, pretty firmly defended mm -hmm. here in New Mexico, as we, as we know. Um, so I don't anticipate that this particular ruling would have a direct impact on the ability of New Mexicans to obtain abortions in our own state. Mm -hmm. It's it's really a matter of, you know, what is happening, what is happening in Texas right next door. Yeah. Boy, the reaction's unbelievable. I actually listened to a uh, BBC discussion about this from overseas <laughs> last night. It was very yeah. interesting. It's kind of a global news. It's amongst women uh, in the media business. It's amazing. Hey, I want to thank uh, you for that, Sophie. Rebecca Latham, I want to welcome you to our first, your first Facebook Live with us on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you very much. In case you don't know her, she is the former head of the New Mexico Tourism Department under Governor Susana Martinez, and she's currently CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico. Congratulations on your everything you've accomplished so far, by the way. Girl Scouts is pretty cool. What's your one more thing this week, Rebecca? Thanks, Gene. Well, one more thing that I'd like us to consider, because we've heard a lot this week about new money in the budget, and that's mm -hmm. a great thing to talk about. So one, something I want to bring back up again is the land-grant permanent fund. And I want to talk uh, about that for a minute. Yeah. The permanent fund, you know, for anyone who isn't aware, is it, also known as the permanent school fund, and it's an endowment set up by our forefathers mm -hmm. to, to fund education for our kids. It's primarily funded by oil and gas, kicks out about three-quarters of a billion dollars each year to fund education. And over time, because we haven't touched it, it has continued to grow and generate more money. Well, the permanent fund is very, very healthy, and we hear about it all the time. It's one of the largest permanent funds in the country. It's so big that it has a target on its back. And, and lawmakers, coming up in November, lawmakers are asking us, the voters, to do what they haven't been able to agree on uh, in, in a decade or so, which is to tap into that fund. So one thing I would just like us to consider when we go to the polls in November is that you know we're constantly being told that we are uh, that we're failing because we're poor. Right. Uh, we're 49th or 50th in education because we don't put enough money into our schools. Mm -hmm. And in fact, historically, New Mexico uh, has has designated more per pupil than Colorado, Texas, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, uh, and that's something that people I don't think really understand. You know how this works. The the permanent fund distribution is set at five percent, and that money is is split up between every student K through 12. Then it goes down to the districts. And the districts where that that money is is uh, it, where those budgets are being formed, that's when things start to get twisted. Yeah. And whatever's happening in the budget process at the district level uh, needs to be looked at. That's where decisions are are being made that are directly impacting our classrooms mm -hmm. and our students. So you know what what's coming to what's coming to the the ballot is the decision to increase the permanent fund distribution by another one and a quarter percent to fund both early childhood education and K through 12 education. Uh, but I, I really think that that 
it's that putting more money into a flawed system isn't the answer. You know, if, you're, if your house is cold in the winter because you leave the windows and the doors open, you don't buy a second heater, you close your doors. So I, I just think it's something that we really, that we really need to look at. Uh, it's gonna be on the ballot this year as our many new school board candidates. And, and they may have a plan how we can get more money into the classroom that doesn't involve their permanent fund. And I'd just like us to be able to explore that a little more. We all want what's best for our children. We all want our children to be successful, but we also have a responsibility to those children. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think fixing a broken system uh, is probably more important than just kicking out more money uh, every year when we're already spending more per pupil than our neighbors. Mm. I got a question for you, Rebecca. Interestingly, um, you know, I, as you read about this, there's been a push by Republicans about school board seats. And do you anticipate this to be a, an issue in uh, upcoming school board elections? How one spends this kind of <laughs> this largesse and in, in other decision making? Is, it, is this going to be a little bit different this cycle? Uh, you know, I can speak to what's happening with some of the elections with the Albuquerque, uh, the mm. Albuquerque School Board mm -hmm. and the candidates that are, that are, you know, your typical, what, what I would consider, it's what I affectionately refer to myself as mad moms. We are mad at what has happened with schools over the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. And these mad moms are, are stepping up, getting out of their comfort levels and, and saying this system, even before the pandemic, the system wasn't working the way it should be mm -hmm. and, and we're prepared to fix it. And, you know, whether those candidates uh, are, you know, aligning more as Republicans or, or members of the Democratic Party or our independents, you know, I, I really just think it's a, just a new kind of subgroup that transcends politics. It's just moms that are ticked off right. and have had enough at, at what <laughs> our schools have been forced to go through. Good points there. We'll have to wrap that up. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. That'll do it for another episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. We always appreciate you tuning in, listening. Encourage you to encourage your friends and family and loved ones, those who care about uh, the important issues affecting New Mexico, uh, and especially those who love podcasts, to search us out and subscribe and give us a review too. It helps a bunch. Uh, New Mexico in Focus. You can find us wherever you found it uh, for listening to this, but wherever you find your podcasts, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you, you name it, pretty much we are there and we're hard at work already for next week going to have a lot of great stuff for you including the return of our land and this is going to be a great one we'll bring it to you on the podcast but it's one you're definitely going to want to check out online or on air because it is going to be beautiful and it's all about celebrating our unique and gorgeous night skies in new mexico can't wait to share that with you we hope you have a terrific weekend want to let you all know um, my appreciation to the New Mexico and Focus team. That includes senior producer Matt Grubbs, producer Kathy Wimmer, of course, host Gene Grant, our environmental reporter Laura Paskus, and our production team. We don't always get a chance to thank them, but production manager is Anthony Lostetter. Our crew members are Kevin Maestas, Benjamin Yaza, Robert McDermott, and Aaron Senna. Thanks to all of them. 
and thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.